One of the most important things you can do for your health is to control your blood sugars. And one of the most powerful tools we have to do just that is exercise. In this episode, we're going to dive a little deeper on how you can use exercise as a way to manage your blood sugars for the better. Let's get started. So welcome back, everybody, to episode four of the fifth season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much. I'm a board-certified physician in family and sports medicine, and my goal here is to help keep you active and healthy for life through actionable evidence-informed education. Let's get started here. So first things first, you might be asking, like, well, Jordan, why does this matter at all? Like, I don't, why do I care about blood sugar? I've heard about it kind of before. It doesn't matter. Well, it's super important. If you go back to my necessary nine, kind of the first season, it's really one of the pillars of overall health. And there's a lot of importance placed on blood sugar control. You know, first things first, about 10% of the U.S. adults have type 2 diabetes. So that's just 10%. And about 45% of them have diabetes. So on top of that, we're about 50% of people, but more than half the population have some sort of issue with their blood sugars. That is not normal. That is not ideal. So more than half people have some issue with their blood sugars. That's why we should care so much because it is so prevalent. On top of that, we think of insulin resistance as kind of the core of diabetes. So when your body makes insulin from the pancreas, you know, usually you get some glucose in the system, right? You eat something and you bring in some sugar, your body secretes insulin from the pancreas to then help absorb that glucose. However, with insulin resistance, your body needs to make more and more of the insulin to get the same amount of glucose absorbed until it reaches kind of a tipping point, which we call diabetes. So what that means is, Hey, normally let's say you have a apple, I'll just say you have an apple and normally it takes 10 units of insulin to do that. That's not a, not, that's not normal. Like 10 units of insulin is a measurement. It looks like that. Don't worry about the numbers. I'm just giving an example here, but let's say you have an apple and it normally takes 10 units of insulin to absorb that. Then with insulin resistance, what happens is you eat that apple and all of a sudden you're requiring 20 units of insulin. So you can still do it. You still respond to insulin, but you become more and more resistant to it. Meaning it's taking more and more to go until eventually you get to the point where it just, you need more and more and more than we make the diagnosis of diabetes. So what your body's doing though, is it's letting glucose hang around longer in the blood for, you know, not a real good reason other than we're, we're sensitive or not, not sensitive to insulin anymore. And so we have too much glucose hanging around the blood and when you do that, it can lead to a whole bunch of problems. And and the question you might ask is, okay, well, if this is a problem insulin resistance, what leads to insulin resistance? And that's actually a great question. There are multiple different things we think may be contributing to that. One that we know for certain is excess adiposity in specific places, meaning, hey, if you have excess adipose tissue, that can lead to insulin resistance. And on top of that, having a surplus of calories, right? So when we have a surplus of calories, that leads to that accumulation of adipose tissue. And then when we get adipose tissue into surrounding organs like the liver or the pancreas or the muscle, that can bring on insulin resistance. And this really does matter because with diabetes, you start to have issues with sugar all over the place, right? When you have too much sugar hanging around, it can lead to hardening of our small blood vessels that are found in the kidney, in the heart, in the eyes, and pretty much ever in the body. And so the things we think about Diabetes is one of the leading risk factors for blindness, for kidney failure, and has a direct correlation with heart attacks in terms of cardiovascular health. So there's only a few that I've named. It really impacts every single type of system, but it has a big, big impact. So we care so much about this. And so the question we have is, well, how does exercise and insulin resistance work? Like what's the mechanism there? Does exercise help? Yeah, it does. First of all, exercise in and of itself can help increase pancreatic function. So when you exercise, you might just say, hey, I'm able to secrete pain, you know, insulin a little more, make it a little easier. So exercise in and of itself can increase pancreatic function. Um, on top of that, then it also does stimulate glucose uptake. So we've talked about pancreatic function and then glucose intake, meaning, hey, on the skeletal muscles, when you're exercising, what that does is essentially sends a signal in the skeletal muscle saying, hey, we can, let's absorb the sugar. We need it. We're exercising. We need to do that. So when we have 
and we're exercising, we increase our, our sugar without insulin. So they call it insulin independent uptake. So, you know, normally just step back here, insulin dependent means, Hey, when we release insulin binds like a kind of a key on the cells and say, Hey, let's bring in that sugar. It brings in the sugar. When we're exercising though, skeletal muscle says, Hey, I don't need insulin. I'm just going to bring in sugar. And so exercise does help bring in that, um, the sugar without needing necessarily an insulin. And so it's said insulin independent versus insulin dependent. That's kind of how it works. And getting into the nerdy of it, essentially what happens is when we exercise, a transporter called GLUT4 goes to the cell membrane of that and then increases glucose uptake. And this usually lasts about three hours. So when you exercise, you go about three hours of that increased glucose sensitivity without needing any additional insulin. So like I said, exercise can help from a increasing pancreatic function, but also increases by increasing GLUT4 and increasing insulin independent uptake can be very helpful there. And then overall though, your body's just more sensitive to insulin after exercise. It can be actually up to about 48 hours, specifically in the muscles, three hours, but overall in your body can be increased sensitivity for up to 48 hours of exercise. Um, also on top of this, we may have things where, hey, you may be decreasing body fat, increasing lipolysis, improving um, vascular function, all these different things. So there's multiple different mechanisms for how exercise can help your glucose tolerance. If we step back, it can be insulin directly related, meaning, hey, it is helping helping your sensitivity to insulin. It can be insulin independent, meaning your muscles taking up more. And then there's other things as well that just kind of ancillary benefits as well. So lots of good things. Exercise is very good for insulin resistance. If we're going over to preventing diabetes with exercise, how do we do it? Well, first of all, the big tool that we use it for is it's used as a tool to maintain a healthy body weight. So when we're exercising, if you are a normal body weight, exercise is usually probably a big part of that. So that's a big thing. However, though, if you are at high risk, say of prediabetes, exercise is then used as a part of a weight loss plan, which can then return you back to a normal insulin level in terms of insulin sensitivity level. So number one, using as a tool to maintain a healthy body weight. If you're already healthy, cool, exercise is great. Two, if you are elevated and maybe you have increased adiposity, exercise can help decrease weight and that may help get rid of say, Hey, from a pre-diabetes standpoint into a normal insulin sensitivity type of issue. And even a five kilogram or 5% weight loss can lower the instance diabetes by about 40 to 50%. So it's a huge difference. If you just do a little bit, that goes a long way. They've even found that physical activity independent of weight loss, right? So independent of weight loss is an independent predictor of the prevention of type two diabetes. So one study showed that even as little as two weeks of high intensity or even moderate continuous exercise was able to reverse pre-diabetes in 40% of participants. So that's pretty crazy. Let's, let's look at that for one second. This is obviously one study is looking at that, but these people exercised for two weeks. Presumably they were not exercising before. So they weren't exercising before and they introduced them to either high intensity or moderate continuous. And the reason I say this is it doesn't have to be necessarily high intensity, but either one, so high or moderate. And for two weeks, they were able to reverse their prediabetes, 40% of them, 40% of them by just doing nothing more than just exercising. Obviously there might be some weight loss that goes in with it, but that's really, really big. If you think about it, that is pretty crazy. And so the million dollar question is, well, do I do resistance training or do I do cardio? I don't know. First of all, let's look at endurance. You know, there are multiple studies that looked at here. One study looked at, looked at those who did about 45 to 60 minutes of 50 to 75% of the VO2 max. So once again, VO2 max is kind of predicting the max exercise you can do. So 50 to 75%. So meaning that's a hard workout, but definitely not insane. They did this four times a week. They saw a decrease in their fasting plasma glucose, about 18.5 milligrams per deciliters compared to the non-exercise controls. And then we also tend to see though favorable improvements in insulin sensitivity and glucose control, even before weight loss or fitness gains happen. So literally just exercising like your first day, you don't have any fitness gains, right? Like you haven't built up an ad adaptation to that. You haven't lost any weight, but you can still see improvements in insulin sensitivity and glucose before any of that happens. And that's awesome. That's why exercise in and of itself is so important. 
On top of that, other studies looked at indicate exercise in and of itself may lower A1C anywhere to like, you know, 0.5 to 6, 6.66%, um, which is not a significant at all. And we'll talk about that more later. But the general studies I saw anywhere from, like I said, 0.5, maybe even down to 0.3, 0.4. It really depends on the study you're looking at, but all the way up to potentially 0.66. Now looking at resistance training, you know, when we look at resistance training, moderate resistance training, which is meaning you can do a weight of up to 15 reps at a certain weight, but not more than 15. So essentially you're quote unquote max for that would be at 15 and that's moderate. Whereas vigorous is the same thing, meaning you can do lift the weight up to about six to eight reps. So it's just really going to be depending on your weight, right? What it is. So moderate is going to be a little lighter. Vigorous is going to be heavier with lower reps. Study just shown there's been a decrease in A1C by about 0.57% after following a resistance training program. And that's pretty awesome. And I think that's pretty cool that once again, more than half a point of A1C just on decreasing your A1C. It may actually not reduce your fasting glucose though, however, it may, but it may affect kind of like your postprandial state of exercise. So what I mean by that is they were checking people's numbers either on CGMs or just poking their fingers, looking at that. And they said, Hey, when they do exercise, does it decrease your fasting glucose, which is usually in the morning when you check up and they say, not necessarily, but it did seem to affect postprandial, which means after you eat. So you might just be more sensitive multiple times throughout the day. So maybe you're providing with resistance training, you're providing, you're getting muscles bigger, you're doing hypertrophy, it may provide a more, um, more muscle or a higher quality muscle, which can then be served as a glucose sink, meaning it's better at absorbing glucose or taking it up or doing the things we talked about, the insulin independent pathway of just taking up glucose. And so it's really beneficial, maybe then other ways we don't know about in terms of maybe it's not the fasting glucose specifically, but for the rest of the day, your body's just better adapted at handling sugar. That's one way to think about it. And one meta-analysis that I looked at even mentioned that stronger the patients got, the more their A1C reduced. So like literally, which is super fascinating, obviously hand in hand, if you get stronger, you're probably having some benefit in hypertrophy as well. But it just goes to show that we're in resistance training. There's so many ways to get better. Even if you're just trying to get stronger, you may have better in terms of your blood sugar control. And then what about combined fats, resistance, anaerobic? One study showed a decrease in fasting of about 36 milligrams per deciliter and a 0.59% improvement in A1C. And overall seems better than just solo exercise. I know that the initial endurance was high. That was the peak I saw, but usually it's more around like 0.5%. And then what about high intensity interval training, right? That's the one. If you go online, people say you got to do hit that burns off your fat. That is the key. It does seem to be beneficial. It does seem to work, but it doesn't seem to be unique in its effects. We still get the job done, but the average job is about 0.37%. But if you look at these here, we're spanning anywhere from, you know, 0.3 to 0.6, like pretty important. That's kind of the goal is to can we lower this A1C and just to take a real quick step back, I realize I never talked about hemoglobin A1C. This is a measure that we commonly use for diabetes. It is measuring how much glycosylated hemoglobin you see in your bloodstream over, you know, essentially red blood cells last about three months long, 90 days. And so we're measuring over those 90 days, how many of those red blood cells had glycosylated hemoglobin, meaning sugar on the hemoglobin. And we're measuring that. That's what we're measuring with A1C. It's a standard one to look at for looking diabetes. And, but what about exercise for those who have diabetes? Well, what interesting enough is intended 30% of people with diabetes in one study like that didn't actually improve their fasting glucose or their A1C after starting exercise. So we talked about that before. You're like, wait, Jordan, like that doesn't make any sense. You said they can lower the A1C. This goes to show that everyone's going to be a little different. However, though, however, even these people who didn't improve their fasting glucose or their A1C, they did decrease the amount of medications that these patients are taking. So clearly there's some benefit. Obviously, it's not enough to say, hey, I just started exercising. I'm stopping all the meds. Like that's not the case. But we weren't seeing the huge decreases. But if we're decreasing the amount of meds people are taking, that is clearly a win. And those who were exercising were about two times more likely to have good control of their diabetes. So even if worst case scenario, 
you know, you're, you're the, not the best responder to exercise when it comes to your blood sugars. Let's say worse, that's worst case scenario. It seems like the worst case scenario is that you will probably decrease the amount of medications you're taking and have better blood sugar control. That's really a win. I don't see any negative to that. And so another thing we want to talk about is does exercise timing matter, right? Does the timing of exercise impact anything? Your body has a normal circadian rhythm, right? So we talk about morning, evening, that's how you go to sleep, all that stuff. You also have a circadian rhythm when it comes to glucose control. And typically we have worse glucose control in the afternoon. In fact, in type 2 diabetes, it actually may be better in the evening. So normally, if you don't have type 2 diabetes, you have worse evening glucose control. But if in type two diabetes, you actually may have better evening control and it gets worse throughout the night. Just one of the kind of tricky things, the data is kind of conflicting, but some, some things show that some things, other. so it just goes to show that clearly you have irregular glucose metabolism. That's like what we can take away from this. And in terms of timing, some data points show that exercise in the afternoon or evening may be beneficial for glycemic control, but we're not totally sure on that. And at the end of the day, what may happen is it may just make up for our decreased normal insulin sensitivity during the day. And so it's really not that important. The one thing though they talk about is, hey, does like exercising around a mealtime seem to happen? That seems actually to be beneficial. If you exercise around mealtime, that does seem to improve insulin sensitivity, but it may be fine also exercise before you eat and you still get those benefits after you eat. Like we talked about, it lasted a couple hours, right? So if you exercise and then eat, you probably get some benefit or if you eat and then exercise, you'll get the benefit. But I think another important thing to talk about is just using exercise to break up sedentary time. Sedentary time is an independent risk factor for increased mortality. So the more sedentary you are, the more likely you are to die. That's what it is, kind of morbid, but that seems to be there. And for every one hour above the eight hours of sedentary activity we normally have, you have an increased risk of diabetes by 22%. So obviously eight hours is kind of for a lot of office people, that's pretty standard. So the more you sit, the higher your risk for diabetes and for mortality, not ideal. However, though, exercise can help decrease this risk. And it's not even just like exercise, it's a simple light activity like walking, standing instead of sitting, doing calf raises, just standing there, just going up on your toes, doing half squats, really simple stuff. Even things like gardening, walking, watering the lawn, car maintenance, all these things can decrease the risk of type two diabetes. So it seems that Overall, all these things are beneficial for acute glycemic responses um, in terms of what they measure. Is, it seems like your blood sugar response is better when you're more active, but we don't have as much data of, hey, this physical activity from a long-term glucose control. But what we can extrapolate back from is, hey, clearly these people who move more have decreased diabetes and improve lifespan, like a decreased mortality. And we have these short-term kind of improvements in glycemic responses. So we're kind of extrapolating saying, hey, it probably helps long-term control regardless it's good for you. Like active physical activity, obviously very good, but it does seem to help with that. So the big things are, you know, timing is kind of nebulous. Doesn't matter specifically throughout the day when you do it. Not really. It doesn't look like it. it looks like if you can move around meals, that's helpful for glycemic control. And then just breaking up your day from sedentary behavior is also really important. And now we're going to get into the big one. How does exercise compare to medications, right? That's always the biggest thing is, well, can I just replace my medication? So let's go through, let's walk through the most common medications and how it decreases A1C. So first of all, we're gonna talk about metformin. So this is kind of our gold standard, right? So the first line, if you have diabetes, you're gonna go on metformin. This decreases A1C by about 1%, so 1%. Now let's talk about the SGLT2 inhibitors, which is pretty much becoming our second line. This decreases A1C about 05 to 75%. And now let's talk about the GLP-1s, which are the hottest drugs on the market right now. Everyone's talking about it. These are the Wigovi, Ozempic, all that stuff. Uh, decreases anywhere from 0.8 to 1.6%. So 
if we look at it though, what about exercise? Well, we talk exercises anywhere from like the 0.3 to six. So it kind of fits in this category here. Exercise is about as good as our second line oral medications. And I think that's pretty crazy. You know, is it going to bring your A1C down from 11 to normal? No, that's understandable and expected. We're going to need some more help, but it looks like if as a physician, like I am going to, I need to be prescribing and I do, but prescribe exercise for people because it can be just as, as potent as medications. So once again, we should be prescribing exercise as medication because it can be as potent as medications, which is pretty crazy. And the kind of conflicting thing here is obviously some of those GLP ones, you're going to have some weight loss, right? And so these numbers don't necessarily include weight loss in terms of exercise. So exercise is 0.3 to 0.6. If you add in weight loss on top of that, then we're going to talk about huge changes that are going to be just as big as, or, or any bigger than any drug that we have. You know, the GLP ones we saw were the highest there. That probably has to do with some of the weight loss they encounter in terms of the one of the side effects of the medication is to lose weight. That happens. But if we combine exercise, lifestyle habits, all that fun stuff, we can have a big decrease that's very similar to medications. And so I think it's pretty cool. And I think it's super underrated. And we need to start adding this to our stack of exercise. So we're kind of stacking exercise, lifestyle. This is big. And so nothing new here in terms of exercise is good, obviously. But I just wanted to show you how good it actually can be in that we're talking about, hey, when we are exercising, we might be as good as medication. And so overall, let's talk about my take. Exercise, it's good, right? Spoiler alert, it seems to be like a running theme here. Just like, dang, Jordan, these are a waste of a podcast because I know exercise is good. Yeah, but I'm showing you how good it actually is. Exercise is clearly beneficial for diabetes or pre-diabetes. And exercise should include both aerobic and resistance training. I think both is the best. It's important because there seem to be different mechanisms in how they work. So you're going to get the biggest benefits using different modalities. On top of that, if you say, hey, where do I start? Start with the physical activity guidelines. So any more you do is better. It's seemed to be a common theme here that the more you exercise, the better things go, but start with those physical activity guidelines, 150 minutes a week of moderate aerobic activity or 75 minutes of vigorous with resistance training twice a week, start there. And then on top of that, it's always gonna be good and in terms of timing, exercise, quantity, and frequency is, you know, kind of nebulous there in terms of the quantity and frequency in which you do it is much more important than perfectly timed exercise. Meaning do I do it in the morning? Do I do it in the evening for like glycemic control? Just do it and do more of it, that's gonna be way better than freaking out about optimizing your workout routine. And also that being said, it's probably a good idea to break up sedentary time throughout the day, whether that's getting up for a walk, moving around, doing some light exercises, all those things can be very beneficial. But that is gonna do it for today overall. Thank you so much for watching, I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this, please sign up for my mailing list where I'll notify you whenever we put out new content. There's no spam ever, I promise, I hate spam. That is not my favorite thing in the world. Um, so you can go to my website and sign up that there's a link in the show notes as well. And overall, this concludes the episode. Now, get off your phone, Get outside. Have a great rest of the day. We'll see you next time. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.